You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. If you're struggling with drugs, alcohol, gambling or food, or concerned about somebody who is, tune in to The Living Free Show on 3CR at 1pm every Thursday. I don't know how I got there, but and I couldn't stop it. I had stopped expecting that anybody cared. Never enough. I'm never enough. It's never enough. He's never enough. That was the confusion. Tune in to Living Free, stories of recovery from addictive behaviour, Thursdays at 1pm on 3CR. Or listen at 3CR on digital radio or podcasts and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. Being able to centre myself and be okay in myself and turn my world around. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'm Gab and I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict, gratefully sober today. With my co-host Anne, I would like to pay my respects to the Wundra... Wundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery stories and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Before I introduce my guest today, I would like to just uh, put through a trigger warning um, as the content we will be discussing today may trigger some. Please, if you hear anything or anything is triggering, call Lifeline on 131114, which is a 24-7 crisis support line. So today, I'd love to welcome Fleur to the show. Fleur is a recovering alcoholic using Alcoholics Anonymous as part of her recovery toolkit. She is going to talk us through her recovery journey to date. Welcome, Fleur. Thank you. Hey, everyone. My name is Fleur. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Thanks for having me, Gab. My pleasure. Thank you. My first day hosting on my own today. So um, Fleur and I have been on this ride together and I'm so excited to have you in here. Um, Fleur, what we do with this program is we, we, we talk about extre- experience, strength and hope like we do in the rooms, mm-hmm. but we dig in a little bit deeper around, you know, early childhood, the transition around uh, teenage years, etc., and then into recovery. So would you like to kick us off with, I guess, you know, the start of your life and your childhood and, yeah, sure. and that sort of stuff? Um, yeah, so I grew up in a, in a small country town in northeast Victoria. I'm the youngest uh, of... Five girls and I'm a twin. Um, you know, there's always a running sort of joke in my family that, um, you know, my parents had three girls and they tried for a boy and they got twin girls and, you know, so there was all this, there was always a joke but there was always this um, underlying thing of that um, five kids was a lot for my for my mum in particular um, and my dad was a farmer so, you know, sort of working class family. Um yeah, so it was a pretty hectic household, you know, with five five children, um, and I utterly enjoyed being a twin, but that comes with its own little dynamics as well. Um, yeah, and being in a small little town, uh, I realised pretty early on that, 
you know, there's not a lot to keep you sort of enthused and engaged. So you end up, well, I ended up seeking it where it probably shouldn't have been sought sometimes (laughs) and got myself into all sorts of trouble growing up. And, you know, like being in a small country town, you go to a small school, um, you know, the police officer's usually your dad's best mate. Um, I'd get in trouble a lot at school which means that the supermarket visit after school, I was petrified because I'd be running into a teacher that would then tell my mum everything I got up to. So I I did feel on edge a lot. I I felt like I was constantly in this um, state of fear that I had somewhat created for myself day in and day out. Um, You know, and from an early age, even before I picked up, you know, different substances, I I had a certain behaviour about myself that, you know, when I reflect now, was quite addictive to a lot of things. So, yeah, um, yeah that's sort of a basis of, of what, you know, childhood was like. Yeah, well, I, I relate so much to that. I'm, I'm northwest Victoria, <laughs> so <laughs> I understand the, yep. uh, the uh, policeman being dad's <laughs> yeah. best friend and, yeah, not having, I guess, privacy or that, you know, you have so much exposure um everyone knows your business everyone knows everything about you and it becomes a talking topic um so when you you mentioned that you know you saw some addictive I guess behaviors or alcoholisms as we call them in the rooms at that young age what are some of those things that you saw in yourself that you can look back on now yeah those behaviors um, I, I think ultimately I was a lot of things came very obsessive for me, yeah. you know, like even things like um, when I reflect now when I was younger, counting things, things being in a particular order, like I felt safe when I knew what the next set was, like, um, yeah, from a really young age, like I'm thinking like when I was, you know, five years old, mm-hmm. I can remember needing to know what, what laid behind that door or you know, while why I was being asked to go this way, or yeah, I, I was, I was sort of curious, but also, um, yeah, I felt unsafe if I didn't know what was coming around the corner. Um, and so I always had this feeling of being feeling very uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, and added on top of that, I think you know, like uh, I was reflecting with someone last night about this with how times have changed. But when I grew up, you know, in the eighties. Having any curiosity about your gender or your sexuality, mm-hmm. especially in a small country town, um, it, you know, it, it it wasn't encouraged. You know, I think back now that in my t- in the country town, you know, it was either Italians or, or white Australians. You yeah. didn't even really have exposure to diversity. I, I remember one of my teachers was gay, and she um, often. God, was a talking point amongst mm-hmm. the students and mm-hmm. was ridiculed and, and that was my only exposure to it. So, like, um, I felt uncomfortable being – I don't now. I, I, I identify as a, as a woman and all that, but I, I, I wanted to explore what that looked like more. Yeah. And sexuality-wise, like, I didn't I didn't have role models like we do today. Um, yeah, so – a lot of that, you know, just wanting to get outside of myself from a from a really young age. Food was another thing for me. Like I was really picky with eating, um, and then food became a bit of a punishment point within my family as well. So food would be taken away okay. for poor behaviour. So food, yeah, and I didn't really recognise it until more recently of how bigger impact actually food was for me. Yeah. Um, so they're the sort of things that come up before I'd even picked up, you know, a a, um, a drink or a, or a drug. Um, yeah, and then 
a few other things for me when I was sort of 13, 14, um, a way to escape and get outside of my feelings, you know, harming became a bit of my story as well. Okay. Um, which then, you know, it, it, that stuck around for, for a few years until I was able to pick up drugs that, that meant that I didn't have to harm anymore to relieve myself. I found other measures to do it. So did you, with the harming, did that start before substance abuse started? It did. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, different circumstances of growing up um, meant that I learned early on that um, I could receive attention through negative behaviours, not yeah, positive okay. behaviours. So my, my you know, my behaviour at school, um, I was quite a, ch- like, you know, a challenging child, as I'd say, quite... You know, behavioural issues and that. And again, small country town, those days and that stuff, you, you weren't really... The teachers weren't supported to support someone like yeah. me. Um, and I just I had such anger and rage in me and I just didn't know how to release it other than, um, you know, through, through harming. Um, and so, you know, from like 14 when I picked up alcohol and, and that through till when I left the small town I grew up in at about 18, they went hand in hand together. I mean, yeah. it definitely... The moment I could drink like I wanted to drink, um, the harming stepped away. But mm. uh, it was a huge part of my story when I was a teenager. Mm. Mm. Do you remember your first drink or your first drunk? Uh, I, I remember, yeah, because it was one of – so two of my sisters um, are a bit older than me. My mm-hmm. older sister's about nine and a half years older than me and then the next one's about seven and – nearly eight years older yeah so it's uh the one that's eight years old it was her 21st so yeah like I was 12 was I no I would have been uh, something (laughs) 13 (laughs) I was about 13 and uh we're here in Melbourne so we'd come to Melbourne to celebrate it and I remember drinking VB stubbies and um loving it far out I had the best day and I was yeah like 12 13 years old and my like my like my family were all there. It wasn't sneakily drinking. Like I was literally yep. having beers in front of my parents. Yeah, socially. Accepted. And it just felt normal. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Wow. So did you, were you one of those people that, yeah, had, had that drink and went, oh, this is, this is a solution or this is something great? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I, I can really come across as quite a, an extrovert and an outgoing person, but um, far out, like my insecurities, mm-hmm. like very well managed these days, but they got a hold of me big time. And, and the moment that I was able to put a substance in me and get outside of that, I could connect, I could relate. I, um, you know, it was like, again, like, you were pretty cool if you picked up a drink and you were drinking yeah. like I did when you were a teenager and just wiping yourself out every weekend and it was fun to go to school and that be the talking point. And and I remember when a school counsellor, um, this one guy that did somewhat attempt to support me, um, said to me, I think I was about 15 or 16, and he said, you know you drink more than the most teenagers. And I couldn't believe him. I'm like, no, I don't. There's no, I don't. Everyone does this. Everyone is doing what I'm doing. But... Thinking back now, myself and my twin sister, um, did I say, oh, I can't remember if I said I've got a twin, yeah, but yeah, yeah, my twin sister, um, the way that we used to drink, yeah, got like it was, it was to excess every single time and getting ourselves in the most dangerous situations yeah. like car, like crashing cars because um, you're just hop in anyone's car and mm-hmm. go bush bashing as we call it and, mm-hmm. and yeah, to be alive today and survive all that, um, yeah, pretty, 
crazy, mm. really. I, I, I totally relate to the um, drink, like being told that you're drinking more than other people or people around you and going, no way, mm. like there's so much worse. But, yeah, it's just the blinkers on and yeah. the insanity <laughs> of like, yeah, you think they are, but you're actually passed out and they're, you know, gone yeah. home or whatnot. So, yeah, I totally relate to that. So we might take a quick break. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Welcome back to the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you would like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you will find us at your, on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. My name is Gab and today I'm chatting with Fleur about her recovery journey and Alcoholics Anonymous. So Fleur, we were just chatting about your childhood growing up in northeast Victoria, small country town. Yep. Um, the alcoholisms or the obsessive um, stuff that was mm. going on in your brain as a child, um, how that affected you and then ultimately leading you to your first drinks of VB, gross, <laughs> may I say, um, and what that did, you know, to you and, and allowing you to sort of put on this, this facade and yep. connect or, you know, falsify, connect. Yep. Um, so that was around 13, 14. So we now get to, I guess, those later teenage years when you become legally, mm-hmm. um, you know, allowed to drink um, and those sort of into your 20s. Do you want to talk us through that transition in your life and what went on and yep. and the behaviours? Yeah, so um, crazily I got into a uni course after <laughs> school, which I – I'm still in shock about because I hardly did any, you know, thing from an academic perspective at school. But I got into a uni course um, and I was going to move to um, Albury Wodonga um, and move in with my twin sister. So there was a part of me, I was just so excited to to move away from the small town, get out of the family home and just be independent. I remember just craving for independence. And my family had this thing that you got bought the microwave and a doona and, you know, the Christmas before you move and that's your indication to get out of the house. So (laughs) we... That's what you did, which I am grateful for that nudge. Like, you know, it gets got me to travel a lot. But um yeah, and so I was a I was a big fish in a small pond, you know, in going in my school yep. in Myrtleford. And, you know, I I only realise now becoming that small fish in a big pond petrified me. Mm. I never thought I knew I was like insecure and had all this stuff, but I didn't know how you know, social anxiety would just cripple me. Mm-hmm. So I spent that first year of uni pretending I was going to university. Other circumstances happened where I just had to hide away from the world. Like I was very unwell. I, I, yeah. I um, you know, I would drive my sister to school, to work, my twin to work, and I would drive back home. I'd hop into bed and I'd sleep all day and I'd pretend that I was doing stuff and then I'd get up and I'd go pick her up from, from work pretend I had this whole day, we would always go to the bottle shop. and I, So I was a daily drinker from yeah, the moment okay. I could purchase my own alcohol 
Uh, we both were, and that's where we kicked off just daily drinking. Um, I just had to get out of that town. I had to get out of there, and I remember saying to my twin, let's just leave, let's pack up the car, and we drove up to Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, that's where I found rec- – like I found people I could connect with mm-hmm. and I found recreational drugs, and mm-hmm. I thought my life – like this is all everything I've been searching yeah. for, you know, like the feeling of how to connect and like the thoughts of, you know, when you – having these substances where I'd tell like I felt so deeply love and connection for people I'd never felt that in my life and I'm like this is where I belong you know yeah and um spent many years just you know working hard because I was always a really hard worker and like partying hard um but everything felt normal that just felt really normal but when you you know drinking every day and then using substances which would be on a Thursday night Friday night Mm. Saturday night Sunday night you know, um, but again, I thought everyone was doing that, you yeah. know, and a lot of people I hung out with were doing that. Um, I remember that, like, to me, especially at the start of my career in that time, it's like, work hard, play harder, yep. work hard, play harder. Like, it was such a, just a known thing. That's yep. what you did. Yep. If you weren't in that, that's how you made your work connections. That's how you made your social connections. That's how you climbed, for me, you climbed the corporate ladder. Yep. You know, like I totally get that. Yeah. Mm. And, um, yeah, and then I met my, um, you know, my 2B husband who's now my ex-husband mm-hmm. um, and he was a bit older so I, he, I, I liken it now like, you know, he was sort of my knight in shining armour. I was so reckless in the yeah. way I was behaving, the way, you know, I was driving under the influence constantly, crashing cars you know, I would put anything into my body type thing and, and I met this man and I was like, wow, like he, he kept me, he was a safety for me, not knowing that that's what I was doing but yeah. that's how it sort of eventuated. And, um, you know, we moved back to Melbourne and uh, drank and took a lot of drugs but super functional, like I climbed the corporate ladder, I bought, we bought a house, we bought apartments, I travelled yeah. the world, you know, and I was living what I thought then was a life beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> And my parents used – like my family used to joke and go, oh, my gosh, you know, we were never sure what was going to become of you because of the way I behaved when I was a kid. And, you know, you're with a man and you're about to get married and you've got a job and you're travelling and, like, yeah. And these external validations made me feel really good. Mm, <laughs> uh, and I could – is not a yeah. reflection of the inside. And I could drink as much as I needed to drink and I could, you know, consume whatever I needed to to the point in which was keeping me full and keeping me going. Yep. Yeah, so that's – you know, my twenties and you know, early thirties. That's that was my life, um, and it was it was fun for a long time. Until yeah. it Until wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> so that leads me to the next part. You know, mm. when did it start to click, or when? You know, we talk about rock bottom all the time. I know for me, I didn't have one rock bottom. Mm. I had a hundred, and I also know that if I was to go back out there, that. You know, you just keep digging. There's, yep. there's no such thing. When did you start to really realise that you needed to do something and what was the action yeah. that you took? Um, again, reflecting now, I can think back to I was always that person that at the dinner table, even a really nice, you know, in a nice restaurant mm-hmm. that would be watching the bottle of wine. Where is it going? Am I getting my feel? Um, you know, if a group of us friends had, you know, organised drugs for the night, it'd be like, when's it coming? Which is yep. mine? You know, like it was it was obsessive then, but I didn't have any idea that, that, that you know, that I might have had a problem. Mm. Um, I just um, – so in – I think it was July 2016, 16, mm-hmm. my then husband and friends decided to do Dry July and, um, 
you know, like I was always one for, you know, taking on a challenge. Yep. And I remember when it mentioned it, uh, I was like, oh, my gosh, like what a month without having a drink. And I, and I, and I, too much shame to admit that. Like I couldn't admit that to anyone that I would find Why it would really you do hard. That? Why? I, yeah. <laughs> What's the point of that? And I couldn't admit, I couldn't be, get honest about it. So that was the moment in which I went from a daily drinker in front of people mm. to a hiding bottles mm. around the house in coat pockets, in, in drawers, and drinking straight spirits directly from the bottle sneakily, you know, hoping that no one would notice that I'm drinking whilst pretending to be dry. Wow. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just drinking it, you know, I'd get home from work and have a drink. It so quickly went to at 9am I was having to have a drink. And it was at that point in time that I just, I didn't, I moved from being a daily drinker to a 24-hour top-up drunk. Yeah, wow. And, um, and it, it got a hold of me and I, and I, and I, it's still, like, I remember, and I lived with that then, you know, that was a good year and a half of doing that in secret, just too full of shame to even admit it to anyone, my relationship breaking down with my then husband, but not being able to, you know, bring it all together. It was, it was very painful. And very scary. Oh, my God. Mm. Yeah, the isolated drinking and the shame. Um, yeah, I really, really relate to when all of a sudden. But, again, like for me, I didn't click in. That I, didn't, I sort of thought there was a problem there, but that was just my way of, you know, directing and hiding yeah. and, and surviving. Yeah. Surviving. And unless you've sort of been in that space – you know, people don't understand mm. that that's what we do to, to protect ourselves and yeah. try and survive. So you got to that point, your marriage was breaking down. You were like, I'm assuming, you know, what's going on in my life? What's yeah. the purpose of life? What yeah. happened next? Oh, and I could, yeah, I remember saying to myself in like states of misery, just going, how am I feeling worse than I ever have? Like I'd felt bad in my life previous yeah. to that. And I couldn't believe after all the successes and all this stuff, yeah. I was I was feeling worse than I ever had. And um, you know, I was still maintaining a job. Like I was I was you know turning up. Like the physical dependence got me. You know, when you're drinking, I was drinking like a liter of straight spirits a day. But you know, pretty early into it, so I would have. It was my poison and my medicine. If I didn't put it in my body, yep. I'd go into withdrawals, and I was in such an uncomfortable state. Um, and so it wasn't just the the obsession or anything. The physical hold had me, and I was seeing a psychologist. Like you hear quite a bit that you know, like I thought I had other problems, and <laughs> if I solved them, I would be I wouldn't pick up a drink. So I was seeing yep. this psychologist, and I would just go into this disassociated state. And I remember she said to me, she said, "We are not going to be able to work on anything until you dry out." And I was just like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> what does that even mean? Did you believe that? Did you, I wholeheartedly or... believed it. Yeah, By the time okay. she told me that, I um, it was nearly – it was a shock, like far out someone knows about me, but it was also like, oh my, like a relief at yep. the same time. Yep. And that night I went home and I said to my husband, I think I need to go to rehab. Um, I need to be medically assisted in detoxing. That was the only reason I was going to rehab was yep. because – I just needed to get this physical dependence under control and we'll be fine. Mm, you know, <laughs> that's all I need. last words. <laughs> so from there, mm. you went into detox. Yes. 2016 was this or no, 2017? No, 2018. So I did a year and a half of that, you know, top up 24-hour yep. drunk. Uh, it was July 
yeah, July 19th, 2018 was, and mine's a story of relapse. It was my first admission into yep. rehab. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you are absolute proof that you keep coming back if you're still walking this earth and your heart's still beating, just keep coming back. Yeah. And there's many reasons why relapse is a part of some people's story mm-hmm. and not part of other people's story. Mm-hmm. I've got a really good understanding of why it had to be that way for me. Um, you know, the slow the slow surrender and, and all that sort of thing. Like it makes total sense now of why it had to be that journey for me. I had to lose a hell of a lot. Yeah. You know, my life today is very different to um, the day in which I walked into that rehab on the first time, which was, uh, you know, annual leave, sick leave from my yeah. job, you know, uh, still had a house with my – I was still married, you know, like that's – that's that was all around. That's not why I. That's not what I have today. Yeah, mm. yeah. We'll we'll talk more about that after the next break about where you're at now and, yeah. and the growth. Um. So do you want to talk through like the the relapse journey? Because I'm the same. My relapse is a part of my story as well. Um. And I am grateful that I'm still walking this earth, and it's a miracle that I'm alive. Blah yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. But I genuinely, genuinely um, am grateful for that. You, how many times have you been in a in a facility? Uh, in four and a half years, I uh, eight eight admissions into rehab. Um, seven of those were, you know, what they call short term, so twenty eight to forty two day programs, yep. and then I did a um, a three month long longer term, which was a, I was in that place this time last year. Yeah. Um, yeah, so – and look, for me, you know, the, the utter ignorance would be probably my first relapse. You know, the first time I went into rehab, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I literally booked in there for two weeks to be medically assisted <laughs> yep. and I would just be away from the booze for a bit and I could go back and live my life as it was before, you know, I t- picked up sneakily. And, and um, you know, I like the idea of sort of – I'll go back to actually – so. In that two weeks, it was the longest I'd been sober. So two weeks without any substance in me was the longest I'd been sober in twenty years. Like, and and I had I was wow. floored by what substances had done to numb me from feeling anything, and the stuff that came up for me, yeah. memories, feelings. I wanted no part of that. Yeah. I hated it. <laughs> Being sober was far more painful than being an active alcoholic. And that was my story for quite some time. Like I could not accept like, you know, feeling feelings. I couldn't accept Mm -hmm. the dramatic way in which my life needed to change for me to be able to put recovery first. Yeah, and so it was. It was a slow process. One of the one of the um, admissions in. I remember I walked around this facility praying, praying to God, "Why am I so uncomfortable?" Like I was just riddled with anxiety. Yep. And God said to me, um, "You never tried control drinking. You're not ready for abstinence. <laughs> How about we leave here?" And and you know what? I just got this internal feeling like, oh my gosh, I've been. To- this is th- that was the absolute truth because it just relieved every single bit of anxiety in me. And I realised now it relieved it. It was because I um, yeah, it took the fear. I, I knew I couldn't do abstinence just yet, and it was true. Like I needed to go back out there. I felt more of a burden in my marriage trying to get recovery than what I did as an alcoholic. Yeah, wow, a, a, an active alcoholic. Yeah, and um, I hadn't actually attempted trying to control. And I can tell you right now, I left. I left that place. I stayed the twenty eight days, and I left. 
And one of the people working there said, try not to pick up a drink today. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went straight and had glasses of wine with my husband that night. And I was back to drinking directly out of the bottle the next day. Like there was no, yeah, Yeah. there was no pause between how I picked up again. Not a single second was I even able to get a sniff of what it would be like to control your drinking. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, like – um. Our, my marriage didn't last through that. I could not get honest. And, you know, we hear about it, you know, being honest, you know, honesty, openness and willingness. I couldn't yep. get honest. Honesty from a young age had um, equaled um, punishment, equaled mm-hmm. uh, you're admitting to a mistake and mistakes get punished. Yep. And so I was never capable of being honest because I was so fearful of what the consequences were going to be. So much easier to weave and manipulate and oh man holding those balls in the air is just the scariest thing and having relief from that today is just you know yeah. it's remarkable yeah and the people pleasing as well the oh. you know just making sure everyone else around you is yeah. okay yeah 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 Exha- yeah, exhausting heavy. stuff and um you know in my relapses it got worse and worse where i've had um admissions into hospital um in ambulances waking up you know self-inflicted and um accidental injuries like Friday nights at the Alfred is not a fun mm. place to be and that's where I spent a lot of my mm. Friday nights Being because there, of that. where yeah where my drinking would take me mm. uh it got very dark very dark and uh you know like um it was sort of I don't know maybe like 30 for 13 months ago or something like that um I you know I, I had a, I had a dog he was my mm. life it um it was it was a small world. We're in COVID. I was yep. living on my own for the first time in my life, and I was drinking like I wanted to drink, you know, like which had no one watching me. And uh, yep. the only thing that kept it somewhat uh, accountable was this dog, and uh, he was a beautiful rescue greyhound, and he got hit by a car and killed. And I remember like thinking, what now? Like it could have gone either way. And it was luckily that my therapist said, let's you know you need to go into long term, and that was a huge start to how I've got this recovery today, you know, through mm. utter heartbreak. And my literally I'd look this dog in the eye going, mate, I've got to go get some help, but I can't leave you. And looking into a greyhound's eyes like they can see your soul. And I wasn't. I wasn't going to leave him. I wasn't going yeah. to. And it was sort of like – and he literally – I wasn't walking him. Someone else was. And he literally stopped tracks in the middle of the road and got hit by a car and killed. And – Part of me wants to believe that, you know, I saved him from, from you know, the life that he was living and he, he did that to save me and I, and I yeah. like to think that and, um, you know, like I can't, that can't be in vain today. Like that really stays strong with me today. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I totally believe mm. that that's his guiding yeah. light. Absolutely. All right. We might hit another song and come back, Fleur, and talk about life now mm, and the good part. recovery, the great stuff. 3CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. 
all those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Welcome back to Living Free 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. My name is Gab and today I'm chatting with my friend Fleur about her recovery journey and Alcoholics Anonymous. So Fleur, it's been a joy to listen to you so far about the experience and what I guess has got you into recovery today. This is the good stuff. This is the stuff I love about people when they share. You've been into rehab. You've, you're a chronic relapser, as you mentioned, eight times. You, you the one of the miracle child <laughs> children, as am I. Um, and now you have a life. Talk talk us through the last admission that you had. What's changed? what your recovery looks like now. Yeah. So I just want to say I think, um, you know, a lot of the times in which I went into rehab, I, I don't think – I know today they weren't necessarily for me to get recovery. They were to save my life in that instance, you yeah. know, like things would get so reckless that, you know, I'd have to be institutionalised to stay safe. Yep. Um, this this last admission that, you know, was happening at the start of last year, um, it was when I went moved from like doing a 28-day to a 42-day rehab and I went up to um, a place near Byron and I went into a long-term rehab up there. Yeah. Um, and circumstances up there meant like it was a moment, and you hear this a bit in the rooms, there was a moment in which I had probably my first real surrender moment where I just wanted to leave. I was in so much pain. Mm. I felt alone. And the words of someone that had said to me, you know, whatever you do, just don't leave. And every part of me wanted to leave. And I started to learn opposite action, you know, like what to do different. And my will would have been to walk out the door. And as you like, we'll talk a bit more about God's will was for me to stay and learn my lesson in that moment. And, um, you know, I ended up, um, you know, you, you got an opportunity to stay for a lot longer in that rehab and it ended up being that um, I was supported to go somewhere else to keep seeking help. So, you know, slight resentment that I walked away from, you know, but in the end it was sort of like, okay, that was not my will, you know. Something's telling me that I'm not meant to be here anymore. Mm-hmm. And I came back to Melbourne, you think, five months in rehab, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I came back to Melbourne, all my stuff was in storage. All I had was my two suitcases and my car. I went into an Airbnb and what did I do? I picked up a drink Mm. and um, this was a really short relapse but what it did was, you know, it was my rock bottom where I'd lost everything, like, you know, sort of material for me. It was the first time that I really, really, really considered about what it was like. You know, I wasn't in fear of alcohol killing me. I was in fear that it wasn't going to and I could not – I wanted to, like, I really wanted to take my own life and and my brother-in-law had done that a few years beforehand and I saw what that did to my family. Yeah. And I, I didn't have a care about inside of, at all about myself, but I knew there were people out there. You know, my twin sister had two kids and I got eight, I got eight nieces and nephews. There was enough in recognising that there's a, a lot of people out there that care about me. And, you know, I'd heard this message from someone a few years earlier and I wasn't willing to accept it, but it was, no one's going to come and save you. And yeah. I'd been waiting for this this magic wand and I thought, no one is, what am I doing? 
And it was the first time that I'd relapsed. And instead of going back into a rehab, I walked back into I walked into the rooms of AA. Yep. And I remember it was the 28th of April last year. I walked into a – it was a Thursday meeting at 5.45. There was about 10 people in the room. Uh, it was a guest share meeting. And I ID'd with day one. And I got asked to share. And I uh, could not get away. I cried for my entire share, yep. you know. And I, you know, I was like this person when I was sort of for start. I, I could grandstand. I could share like you wanted me to share. Yep. With no honesty, no authentic, like authenticity. You know everything to say. Oh my gosh, gosh, yeah. yeah. Like, and I, I couldn't. I couldn't get a word out. I just remember having my hand up, just like thanking them for the patience that they had, mm-hmm. you know. And um, it was a magical moment. I have not picked up a drink since then, and. You know, it's coming up to, to nine months, which, again, is the longest sobriety. And, and I'm not just, you know, they talk about gifts of desperation. Yes, part of this was recovery. I needed to do this because of a gift of desperation. I don't do this desperately to try and stay away from alcohol now. I do this because I start reaping the rewards of what a life yep. can be in recovery. And it's... Uh, it's it's it's. I'm going to probably say a lot of cliches as we keep talking, but it's it is. It's magical. I love the cliches. Oh, it's a life so beyond your wildest dreams. <laughs> Works if you work. Yeah. <laughs> Don't leave before the miracle. Occurs. Yeah, they're cliches for a reason, right? <laughs> Fleur, you mentioned God's will, um, and I know for me when I came into the program, and one of the reasons why I never wanted to get into AA or like you know I dismissed it entirely for years was because I thought it was a cult and God and blah. for me, my higher power, or what I talk to my higher power is absolutely the universe. I look at the moon, the birds every morning, nature's a big thing for me. And I pray in the fact that I, I talk to the universe. What does God mean to you in mm. that space? And, you know, how did you move through that? Yeah, like I am... Um... I I sort of easily believed a little bit in yeah. in the God stuff. It was the trust. It was trusting yeah. that I challenged with. You know, like I, in rehab, I heard a lot of people that you'd have to state what you're going to work on today, and a lot of people would get like finding my higher power, and it was sort of like, what? Well, it's not like you know you lost keys or something. <laughs> I, I really struggled with the whole idea of like, I'm look today, I'm going to look for my higher power. I just sort of believed yeah. a bit. Um, and through the steps, and this time around, like I've done step one, two, and three quite a bit. Through the steps, like. My sponsor got me to to really like define my concept of a higher power, yeah. and the way it's done for me is what are the core values that resonate, you know? And so for me, my higher power has integrity, yep. is altruistic, is compassionate, um, considerate, trustworthy, and so for me, if I am living in accordance to those values, I'm living God's will. If I'm starting to be impatient, I'm starting to be cruel, I'm holding resentments, I'm taking my will back. Yeah. And that's really how I distinguish. Um, you know, God's all loving. Like that's how I, that's how I, I, I feel about it. And uh, it, it, it's working. So I'm going to keep that yeah, one going for me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. It's like, I don't know what it is. I don't care. Um, God is just a word, you know. That's it's the, the values. Thing. It's 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 yeah. the ideas behind it that I um that I love and yeah. that I live to. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. How how do you connect each day with your high power? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm on a bit of a journey at the moment where um. You know, next level meditation for me. I was mm-hmm. one of those people that if you got if I got asked to meditate for ten seconds, I you know I'd be fidgeting and 
um, you know, a few, few different things. So like AA does one thing, but I seek help outside of that yep. with um, sort of therapy and I do some energy healing stuff these days and and my practice of meditation. And they often say, you know, prayer is you um, asking a question and sending it out there and meditation is where the answers come. And, um, yeah, so it's a daily connection through prayer and, you know, prayers as simple as let me see your will, not mine, you know, and yep. and then – or heap like the the repertoire of meditations that I do these days. Just um, I mean, it keeps me it keeps me sane. It keeps me spiritually connected, and it ultimately keeps me safe. And you know, and that could be some days. It could be you know five minutes in the morning that I've got the capacity to do it or the yeah. time to do it. And sometimes I've got the luxury of an hour in the morning that I can do it. But no matter what, it is maintaining that conscious connection in some way or another. Yeah. yeah, I just laugh because you know I was the same. Like I yeah. can't. <laughs> for 10 seconds and the alcoholic in me like wants to compete because I know how well you do with your meditation and I'm like yeah I'm well, up to like 10 minutes a day now <laughs> so, like you give me hope and motivation <laughs> in a twisted alcoholic way love it <laughs> I love it um so your story around the fact that you took yourself into a meeting and surrendered and that was your day one and that was nearly nine months ago is very very similar to to mine mm-hmm. I did the same thing when I picked up a drink couple of weeks out after rehab Um, and my journey is the rooms have loved me back to life and I love giving back into Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you want to like I guess run through for someone that might be thinking about attending a meeting or you know a bit worried about what is it all about have you got any I know we don't give advice Mm. but some things that worked for you around your experience with AA. Yeah I mean for me, yeah, like I, I, I didn't want to accept AA for a long time. Um, you know, you hear in the rooms that there is a solution and yeah. that the people that are, are sober are evidence that there is a solution. Yeah. And I did not want to be- – I couldn't believe that that solution would work for me. And the only thing that my mind would do would say – I can understand it works for you, but you mustn't be as sick as me yeah. because it's not going to work for me. And and ultimately it really comes down to, like you hear it again, like the honesty, openness, and if anything, every day pray for some willingness, just the willingness to keep going. And um, it was a really slow burn for me, but I just kept going to meetings. And then once, you know, the social anxieties and I got a home, a home group's really important and yeah. a home group is where, you know, you commit to some service and you go to that meeting week in and week out and you just start to feel a part of and, like, I feel so a part of, you know, AA. Um, you I know, remember my sponsor saying to me, your home group is the meeting that unless you're on death's door, you yes. go to every week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's, I agree, like that helps you connect in. It's yeah. like a family. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm still doing sort of seven meetings a week. I know. So. You're crazy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, your home group and those those regular groups that you yeah. get into, it really is like yeah. people check in on you if you don't turn up to a meeting or, you know, you can feel a part yeah. of in that community. And for me, like that is one of the biggest gifts. Yeah. And and the moment I got out of my own way mm. and and sat in the seats and, and, and listened, like I walk into a mm. room now, into an AA meeting, whether it's my home group or other meetings, yep. and I am just hit with compassion, with love, with understanding, mm. you know, like my heart breaks and opens also for newcomers in the room or anyone that's in relapse or, yeah. you know, and we laugh like they say, you know, we're not a glum lot, you know, it says in the book. <laughs> I laugh so much in meetings Sorry. and I used to hate the people that laughed in meetings. Like I really didn't, didn't like, again, what's there to be, what are oh. we happy about? But, um, 
you know, that over time, like that changes. For me, it did. It had yeah. to. It had to change. And and I can't imagine my life without my constant connection into the rooms. You know, like I would be quite. Um, isolated if I didn't go to meetings sometimes I don't want to go to one but I and I do and it's a privilege to hear other people's stories I feel particularly connected to hearing women's stories yeah. like it just warms my heart we are remarkable people doing a remarkable job at keeping ourselves safe and I yeah I couldn't be prouder to be a part of the fellowship really yeah, it's funny that whole when people laugh, like, you know, the laughing, I remember that too. I was like, it goes back to that whole victim thing. Like if you knew what was going yeah. on in my head and if you had my life, you know, and then you start hearing people. That's why I say keep coming back because you are eventually going to hear your story yeah. and someone else and you're going to relate to someone else that's talking. Yeah. And and that could be an 80-year-old man yes. that tells like a story and you go, oh, my gosh, like, you know, and so that is me. It's also like, yeah, you've got to really don't just look for the someone who looks like you might be the same age and the same gender or whatever yeah. like really keep ears open to what everyone has has to say um because there's nuggets of gold in there like seriously some of the stuff that we hear privileged to hear some yeah. of these people share their stories and have those words of wisdom like oh, it's an honor <laughs> and have you noticed as well i mean the what i've really loved in the last few weeks you know we're in january at the moment obviously people have their resolutions we've I know I've seen a lot of newcomers mm. come into the rooms and have support people. So there is open meetings where, you know, you can bring a family member, a partner, a sibling, a friend, whatever. Yep. Um, how have you felt like watching that? Have you ever had family come to meetings with you or anything um, like that? Yeah, my my twin, my ex-husband actually came to a couple when yeah. I was like super enthusiastic about like in the <laughs> early days and I, you know, like it was all a bit of a show a bit mm-hmm. um, and my twin sister with the, you know, back then the wrong pretense to try and encourage her to get in the rooms I suppose yeah. and what I've learned from my sponsor she says it all the time is that that, that make make AA um, attractive you know you know don't promote yeah. make it attractive and that's how I sort of spend that now but it's warmed my heart actually seeing we're in a meeting Thursday last week it's yeah. the same meeting tonight and um the amount of newcomers and then that just like and the meeting was full it was beautiful yeah, and the the Really, when people say it, it's not just saying paying lip service. The newcomer is the most important person in yep. the room, um, and I totally agree with that. Um, and I also, this is quite, you know, not I don't like to see people relapse, but I'm a part of my recovery now where I learn from other people's relapses. I don't mm-hmm. have to be in that cycle mm-hmm. anymore, and I can learn from it and be there for someone who's in relapse. Um because that's part of my story that you've got this another level of being able to support someone that's in, on that as well, you know. Um, it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a real privilege to support and be of service to others that are just trying to, you know, because it's a deadly, we know it too well, yeah. this this stuff kills people. Like yeah. I had a friend that, you know, just found out on the weekend that she yeah. was she was a decade of trying this and, mm-hmm. and lost her life to it and we hear it all the time. Yeah. So um, this is life or death. Yeah. For a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. We have a joke and we can have a laugh in the meetings. Yeah. We also have lots of tears, but yeah. that's the reality of it. It's death and I've, you know, mm. I've seen it too yeah. in, the, in the short time I've been in the rooms or, you know, nearly nine months. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's not a game. No. But, you know, you can have 
fun and ride yeah. a roller coaster with yeah. some amazing people. Yeah. But if it's there, you know, it's the opportunity is absolutely there. The solution is there, as we say. So just um, quickly, Flora, just, you know, you talked about what your life was like, the materialism and what you mm. had, the external stuff. I was very similar, mm. you know, own my own home, good corporate job, earning the money, travel. Um, and my life looks completely different now and I'm the happiest I've ever been in my yep. entire life. So tell us about your yeah. life today. Like to ultimately be able to accept the blank canvas in which my life had, you know, gotten to by the time I'd, I'd done my last relapse. Um, and I went into a recovery house. So after rehab, I went into a recovery house. Like yep. I just did things to keep myself safe. And today, you know, like I, I don't work in corporate anymore. I'm yep. actually studying full time. I'm doing a diploma in community services. I'm really not sure where it's going to take me. I, I start placement. I'm going to be, you know, going into primary schools, hanging out with kids with behavioural issues, like, you know, supporting kids like I was. Yeah. And and that's where I was meant to be, I think, like, Amazing. you know, giving back. Community is huge for me, you know, not trying to make a business bottom line look good. I'm meant to be, like, helping people and it's been, like, a, I never thought that that would be possible. Um, you know, I live on my own and I'm I'm accountable and safe to live on my own. I've yeah. recently just rescued another greyhound. I've been volunteering with greyhounds for a while and I've just rescued this boy named Lucky who's an absolute sweetheart. Um <laughs> And you know that that feel, like you hear it fills your cup. It, it you know fills that soul in my uh, hole in my soul yeah. type thing. And um, yeah, and I just like again the cliche is I just live for today. I live in the day. Yeah. Uh, I can catastrophize about the future sometimes, but I've got the tools to bring myself back to today. Yeah, uh, I don't have fear of the future like I used to. Um, you know, and I and I'm working on not having the resentments of the past and. And that's all because of the program and what it, what it um, allows us to do. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I just, you know, I love riding my bike. I've learned how to play a ukulele. There's a whole lot of things that just bring me, the simple things in life bring me the most joy and and I'm excited about what the future will, will bring. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Fleur, look, thank you so much for coming on today. Pleasure. My first show as host. Um it's been an absolute privilege and honour to chat to you today. Um, and I'm just, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you too. Yeah, you did like, an amazing job. Thanks for having <laughs> it's me. It's just amazing that, um, you know, we've, we've made it yeah. uh, this far. And, you know, as you say, like the, the future is one day at a time, but, you know, it's bright. Yes. And for me, it's absolutely thanks to the program and the program of recovery that I have. If you would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can phone them in Australia on 1300 222 or jump online at aa.org.au for more information. Uh, there are plenty of meetings around. There are plenty of online meetings if you want to start off that way. Um, f- yeah, absolutely encourage for, for people to get on um, and get in and keep coming back because we are living proof that the program works as part of our recovery toolkit. So that is all the time we have for today. Thank you again, Fleur, for talking to us uh, about and sharing your recovery story and getting vulnerable um, in the hope that it will help others and that they do not need to, you know, suffer in silence. Join 3CR from 9am to 4pm on Thursday the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. 3CR's First Nation broadcasters will be bringing news and views from activists around the country with grassroots politics that you won't find anywhere else. 
Thank you for listening to us today. Stay safe and stay tuned now for some more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.